Welcome to the KBB Review podcast. I'm your host, Andy Davis, and this is part two of our look at the results of the KBB Review Retailer Survey 2024. It's our biggest ever survey of independent kitchen and bathroom retailers, and this week we'll be looking at some of the biggest challenges retailers face, like the wider economy, finding good fitters, and why consumers are taking so long to make decisions. And we'll also be looking at what retailers think of their suppliers, and what suppliers think of retailers. We'll be discussing all that and more with the return of our very special panel, Liz Pantling-Jones from Lima Kitchens and Milton Keynes, Kenny Luck from Luck and Fuller in Billericay, Alex Gemman from Gainsborough Kitchens in Gainsborough, and Simeon Gabriel, the Managing Director of Hetic UK. But first... Yes, this special survey pair of episodes are brought to you with the support of our 2024 KBB View research partner, Hetic. We couldn't have done this amazing survey without them, so huge thanks go to them, and you can find all about them at hetic.com. That's H-E-T-T-I-C-H dot com. And that link is in the episode description. So as promised, we've reconvened our expert panel to talk more about our survey results. Now, if I've learned anything doing over 200 podcast episodes, it's that people don't necessarily listen to them in the order that you want them to. So for those that are doing this one first, I'm going to have to get everyone to reintroduce themselves, I'm afraid. So we're going to start off Liz Pantling-Jones from Lima Kitchens. Hello, Liz. Give us a 10-second overview of Lima Kitchens. So we are a small independent showroom based in Milton Keynes. This year is our 18th year of operating. We started out relatively simple with renovations and we've moved into more project-based work um, as many people have over the the last two decades. Right, and we've got Kenny Look from Look and Fuller. Hello, Kenny. Tell us all about your company. Hi there, Andrew. Yes, so we're a mid to high end small family business based in the heart of Essex and Billericay. Do supply and fit, have our own teams of installers and have some fantastic products here after being open for three years now. Brilliant. And we have Alex Gemman from Gainsborough Kitchens. Hello, Alex. Give us the Gainsborough Kitchen story. Hello. Thanks for having us back. We're an independent retailer in Gainsborough, Lincolnshire. We specialise in kitchens, also offer bedrooms, bathrooms, offices, media walls. We're in our 25th year. We do a full design, supply and installation service and believe that good design is for everyone, whatever the budget. And last but by no means least, we have Simeon Gabriel from Hetic. Hello, Simeon. Sum up Hetic for us. So Hetic is a multi-billion business that produces furniture fittings. We're a family business. We've been trading since 1888. And we produce hinges, drawer runners, drawer boxes, and a whole variety of other furniture fittings. Right, so a brilliant panel we have. We had a fantastic discussion over in uh, part one. So if you haven't heard that yet, please go and, and check that one out. But let's jump straight back in here by talking about the next bit of the survey, which was the biggest challenges that retailers are facing. And I think this is one of the most interesting parts, actually, because some things are universal, but there's always some that are kind of coming and going and perhaps don't carry the way that you think they would, or they're much more of a challenge than you would suspect. So what happened was we listed a load of challenges and asked retailers to pick the ones that applied to them. And the most picked answer was, no surprise at the moment, the wider economy. So the macroeconomic picture is the biggest challenge that they have. And that was followed uh, very closely by decreasing footfall and inquiries. And we talked a lot about that in the first episode. But the one that jumped out to me that I thought we could have a little look at now, because it's never really featured in any similar surveys we've done, was that clients are taking a long time to reach final 
decisions. And that's come right up the list of a big challenge that retailers are facing. So let's start with you, Alex. Is this something you're dealing with at the moment? Absolutely, yes. Kitchens, particularly, are a postponable purchase, particularly at the higher order values. So people are looking potentially a long time before they actually want it. We've got a couple of jobs that we sold in inverted commas middle of last year that are still waiting for confirmation. We know these jobs are going to materialise, but the customers are just not in a hurry to do it. There are new builds that are going on where people are coming a lot earlier in the process, even at the planning stages and asking for plans and then disappearing for months at a time. I think less so with bathrooms. Bathrooms are a little bit more affordable than kitchens. We're getting a lot of little jobs. We're getting a lot of additional units and door swaps at the lower end where people aren't going to struggle with the budget. But yeah, the big budget stuff, nobody's in a hurry. Right, Liz, do you concur with that? Yeah, yeah. I think lead times is definitely a challenge um, that we're facing. A lot of people do plan earlier and platforms like Instagram and Reels build inspiration for people and they, they hunt out a lot of the products that are on there and try to find them at the budgets that are exposed on those platforms as well, meaning that they spend a lot more time researching and approaching different companies as well to try to find these products. Yeah, what about you, Ken? Is this something that you're, again, a relatively young business, is this something you've noticed a change in or is it entirely down to budgetary things or is it just, as Liz says, there's just so much choice out there that they can't quite make their minds up? So if you asked me this two and a half years ago, I'd have given you a completely different answer. I think during COVID, and we opened just sat bang in the middle of it, really, it was very much the case of we did a quotation, we made the amendments with the customer there and then, and they went, brilliant, when can you do it? And our conversion rate was through the roof, which was great, and it caused a very long lead time for installations. As we've developed and grown as a business, we have seen it kind of change quite dramatically. And I, I would say now, if someone from point of contact to placing their order if it's within three weeks i would say that's probably about right for us however we do see inquiries go into the three to four months depending on the size of the project and we've done a couple in recent times which they're buying a house it's going through probate or, or whatever and they want to push the go button but they can't until they know when they're going to get the property so we do have the odd one like that, but I would say we close most of the sales that we do win within three to four weeks, I would say. Right, oh, okay, so that's still quite a quick turnaround. That's quite impressive. I'd say for us, we're looking near uh, probably a two to three month turnaround on the average project from first inquiry. Whether that means we just don't follow up enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we are kind of too quickly. I think that, that could be one, one thing that we could be a fault for there. And maybe we do need to look at what we don't win. And I think we're so focused on what we do win, which takes up a huge amount of our time, that we don't have as much time to focus on what we don't. And I, I do agree that if we had a bit more time, which is what I, thought, I think every business owner would say they want a bit more time, to follow up on the inquiries from two months old, we probably might win 15% more, more than we currently do. It's something that we, we do want to look at in the very near future, about what we don't win rather than what we do win. Historically, we always used to turn quotes around within two, three weeks and sell it on the spot. It, it's unusual for this to happen. Again, speaking as 25 years doing it, it's, you know, we, we expect to go and see a job, get the presentation together, sit down in the showroom, and usually that's the point of sale. It is just nowadays that people are going away and saying, right, well, we're not ready yet, we'll, we'll come back and see you in a few months. Some of them are even leaving deposits and saying, we'll have the work done later in the year. But it's a strange time. And what, what do you think is the uh, main driver behind that? Is it that they are trying to get the money together for the for the project? Or is it that maybe it's part of a, a wider building project and they're struggling to get hold of the trades to do the other parts of the work? I'm sure that some 
truth to that. I'm sure there's some truth to the fact that they're just, because people are generally worried about money, even the people with money, I think they just want to get all the ducks in a row a lot earlier so they know exactly what the overall spend's going to be. They don't want to uh, run the risk of overspending. So I think they just need to know the figures a lot earlier in the process than they used is, to. Is there not an issue, though, that the quote that you gave them several months ago will now have changed because prices have gone up and you know, supplies are changing prices and whatever, whatever? Oh, absolutely. And, and that's very much pointed out to them, but they just figure, well, that's the ballpark figure. It's probably not going to change much. They might be wrong, but that's what they think. <laughs> so interesting that it is a relatively new phenomenon. Let's move on to the, the next challenge here. We, we touched on um, installation a bit in the last episode, and I suppose everything is symptomatic of the economy, isn't it? But one of the challenges that has always come up when we do these kind of surveys is finding good fitters, right? And in fact, that was the top one on a, on a survey we did a few years ago, and about 80% of retailers said that was one of their biggest challenges, finding good fitters. But this time around, it was only chosen by 8% of retailers as a big challenge. So does that mean the problem has gone away, or has the drop in demand disguised it? Liz, what do you think? Because we were all looking in the past, we we will have settled down in finding people. And I think the bigger challenge that we've got, because installers are ageing, is bringing in new people and then getting to a point where they can now problem solve to the way that we've become accustomed to. I think that's going to be the next challenge with installation over the next five to ten years. Right. And what do you think, Kenny? The only reason people are struggling to find installers is because they've had installers leave. If you look after your installers well enough, they won't leave. We do look after our guys, like we said on, on last week's episode. We do look after our guys very well. They will go the extra mile for us, and we appreciate that, and we reflect that to them as well. So unless there are new business opening up, that I would see the struggle trying to find the right people there. But just like Liz said, we are a aging industry, not just from sales and designing, but from installers as well. And there's not this younger generation coming through. We're very lucky we have an apprentice who works with us as well, who we're training on part of the industry. From a sales point of view, we just can't find someone from an installation point of view as an apprentice at this moment in time. But as an industry, we need to be better at training and uh, developing talent at all levels of the KDB industry and and develop that people and, and get them on board and then keep them. I think the hardest thing is keeping them more than finding them. Yeah, I mean, what do you think, Alex? Because there's a danger, isn't there, that a couple of years ago, this is a topic that was discussed at great length because there was a massive boom going on and it became suddenly obvious, the, the issues that Kenny's been talking about, about an ageing workforce and all that kind of thing. But the drop in demand falls away, suddenly it's not as challenging as it used to be. Is there a danger that we sort of forget what it felt like to realise that there weren't enough of them around? Uh, absolutely. I think I have been lucky. A, lo- a lot of good fitters have approached me over the years, which is you know, a benefit of being there a while and having a good reputation. At the moment, it's not an issue. Certainly a year ago, I had my employee fitter, but I also uh, subcontracted quite a few jobs. But I don't know how much my colleagues here do site work and contract work. We have regular builders that we do work for, and that work has all but dried up at the moment. Uh, new builds are not selling like they should. And two of our regular contracts are just saying, well, we're not going to put any more kitchens in until we sell a few more houses, and then we'll get back on track again. So I'm thinking for the next six, eight months or so, I'm not expecting to do an awful lot of site work at all, which takes the pressure off needing a more fitters and takes the pressure off needing to find subcontractors it's not always easy to find a good subcontractor uh, absolutely with with kenny and liz if you get a good fitter pay them well look after them and and you'll be sorted uh, but it's that 
it's the second lot of fitters it's not the employed ones it's the, the subcontracted ones that are a little bit harder if you're keeping them busy uh, then you can usually get a good relationship and it works well if you can't keep them busy then it starts getting quite tricky to to organize them so we're not in a position of struggling at the moment but i expect when it starts picking up again as i'm sure it will later in the year we may start having problems i don't know i suppose i suppose if you're thinking properly this is the time when the industry whatever that actually means should be doing the groundwork to try and fix this problem will be quite as acute next time it comes along all a bit easier said than done isn't it look let's move on to the supply chain now this is where it gets tricky for you simeon all right so brace yourself because <laughs> we again we were looking at the challenges now a bit like finding good fitters, the shortage of products uh, and availability has slipped right down the list compared to the last time we did a, a similar survey. And nearly a quarter, I think 23% said it was one of their biggest challenges, whereas two years ago it was 80 or 90% said you know getting hold of products was, was a massive problem. So the supply chain's obviously got better, but it hasn't gone away. So look, Simeon, what's your reading of the wider supply chain now following all the issues that suppliers had in that lockdown boom? Well, I think it's... Uh an open topic that you know especially during the boom periods everybody was maxing out their capacity in the factories therefore things got extended and at the same time there were logistics issues and so on and so forth the good thing is that a lot of those issues have passed i know certainly from our point of view we used the opportunity during the last few years to invest quite heavily in plant and machinery and as a result we've created additional capacity over and above what we what we had previously so you know from a strategic point of view we're now even better placed to meet not only uh, the kind of levels of business that we had a couple of years ago but plenty of growth over and above that because when it comes down to it we look at it from the point of view of our customers and i personally know having worked in manufacturing all my career that you can't have a situation where your industrial customers and smaller manufacturers are actually waiting around for components. It's just not sustainable. And obviously that feeds into the ability of independent retail to offer the kind of levels of service that they want to to their customers. So it's vital that all of those things stack up and work harmoniously to deliver the kind of level of service to the end customer that we all want to. So I think um, we're in a much better position now as an industry from the point of view of uh, supply chains and the robustness of those supply chains than perhaps people were a couple of years ago. I think a lot of lessons were learned. I think the, the industry was going down a just-in-time kind of route. And I think, weirdly, the whole experience through that lockdown period has shown that you actually need a bit more of a hybrid model of, of just-in-time plus stock. Liz, is this still an issue for you? Are you still having problems getting hold of products? I don't think the supply so much is, is an issue. Obviously, things are out of stock from time to time. There are longer delays. Spray machines go down. These, these things occur, but it's definitely not what it was. I think for us, the challenge that we're having with our suppliers is just adapting to um, new ways of working. We're finding that our relationships are based less upon people and more on circulars and, and being proactive in checking portals and things and i think that's the biggest difference that we've seen with our suppliers over the last 12 months right the market is changing rapidly all the time isn't it and i think that's one we can revisit later on in this conversation i think the other sort of challenge that i wanted to to talk about is again it's another one that used to be right up at the top of the list and while it's still there it has fallen down in terms of priorities and that's dealing with online pricing 
it was only chosen by about 13% of, of retailers as being one of the biggest challenges, although 40% still had it on their list overall. So it's still there. Kenny, how do you feel about clients waving online prices at you? Is it still as big a problem as it used to be? I really don't know is the honest answer. As a business, we have placed ourselves where we don't promote too many brands which are... And we, we, yeah, we've kind of voted with our feet. And we've steered away from brands who, who are heavily discounted online. There are still one or two that we have to kind of use, which is kind of through gritted teeth. And we kind of have to because they're a necessary evil. But as a rule of thumb, we try and use brands, and more and more brands are doing it, to be fair, who have an online policy and they have terms and conditions where you cannot advertise or use the image rights or whatever it might be to sell those products online. And we try and back those. Those brands are backing independent retailers. And I think as an independent retailer, it's only fair that we back them as a thank you, I suppose. So we don't get too many people come back and say, I found it for this price. And when we do, we sell our service and we sell the quality of who we are and what we do, and we sell our brand rather than that particular product. Alex, this was always something particularly related to appliances, wasn't it? So has it got better? Has, as Kenny describes it, the suppliers have found ways or means of getting around some of these things? Or has it just slipped down the list because all these other challenges are much greater? I've never found it a problem, is the honest answer. You're right, it's predominantly appliances. When we're quoting a project what we have on display in the shop is we're absolutely trying to find the exclusive products and we're quoting the exclusive products so we know that they're not going to go online and find it significantly cheaper they might find it slightly cheaper the problem more comes the other way where a customer will perhaps a past customer five years ago we did the kitchen they need a new dishwasher they come in and say this is the one i've seen online you do ag don't you how much can you get it for and then you realize it's a non-exclusive product and the internet slaughters you on it so that, that's a problem from that side. It, it never really affects the kitchens that we sell and the kitchens that we quote. It's more people just buying individual appliances. But I wouldn't call it a massive problem. I think in the past, where we had products on display that were hammered on the internet, that would be a problem. I can think, you know, 10 years ago, if you had a range master on display, people would just come and look at it and then go and order it somewhere else. But retailers got savvy to that fairly quickly and just started putting products on that, that weren't on the internet. Yeah, what do you think this? Because I sometimes wonder whether this is an issue about perception. So it gives consumers the wrong idea of what things might cost as opposed to being directly challenged about price. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think it's a, a process in understanding what a kitchen really costs. We go through peaks and troughs with being asked to compete with things. We're in really close proximity to a lot of head offices. So we come up more against staff and friends and family discounts that we have to navigate in order to meet our targets. But really, it's, it's just a conversation for us about the service, the advice, being able to use our services for demonstrations and, and learn how to utilise those appliances to the best possibility for their needs and really selling that, that side of it. And one of the things that we implemented to try to overcome it is we now charge an additional handling for any appliances bought elsewhere just because there is a level of risk to it and it, it just safeguards our, our margins a little bit more. Simon, you're not in a, in a market directly that has this as an issue, but I'm sure you can sympathise a little bit with brands who... It's very hard, isn't it, to create packages for each channel that are completely different. You can't leave one channel behind. You have to try and please everybody all the time a little bit, don't you? This idea of trying to treat the online channel differently and somehow have different pricing for it, it's really hard, isn't it? 
Well, it, it isn't easy. I mean, online has, has changed the retail landscape in an awful lot of different industries. You just have to take the time to understand it and you do have to treat it differently because there are certain strengths of online retail from the from the point of view of the end consumer. We're all now used to certain things like next day delivery and that we probably wouldn't have been 10, 20 years ago. That has actually influenced service and service expectations in other industries massively. Everybody's had to up their game from that point of view. But the simple fact is that an online retailer is not in the same position to offer the the kind of personalized service that we've been talking about earlier in this conversation and also in last week's podcast. Because actually that face-to-face consultation, the collaborative sale and so on, is something that only independent retailers can actually offer. And it's not something that the sheds are in a position to offer. It's certainly not something that you can do online. So that's where independent retail has a a massive USP for me. Yeah, I mean, again, another topic we could talk about for days if we wanted to. What I want to move on to here is we hear a lot about challenges and we've heard a lot about the economy and all that kind of thing. But I want to have a little look about what retailers are actually doing about it. Right. And, we, and these are some of the questions that we asked in the survey. And what I like about it is actually a lot of it is very sort of positive and affirmative action. So nearly two thirds said they're increasing their marketing activity. 40% said they're expanding their target market. 30% said they're increasing the number of suppliers they deal with. This is all very positive stuff. There's also the flip side of that where uh, 36% said they were reducing operating costs 28% said they were increasing their prices and actually we're talking about old chestnuts that that we talked about a lot through the years nearly one in five said they're starting to charge customers for design which is I think is a really interesting development so Alex let's start with you are you doing any of those what's working for you in terms of actually tackling all these issues that we're talking about I like to think we're doing a lot of those. Uh, as the saying goes, if you're not going forwards, you're going backwards. So a accountant once said to me, there's two ways of increasing profit- profitability. You either have to cut your costs down or you increase your margins. Well, cutting your costs is a very finite thing. You can go around trying to economise here, there and everywhere and save only a few percent, put your margins up, develop new areas, develop new products, new markets, uh, and absolutely you can uh, get your money back. We are definitely diversifying products. We put a couple of masterclass displays in recently. We are promoting things like offices and media walls, which we didn't used to do. We're doing a more wraparound service, as in we're now working with a, a talented local interior designer who comes and does colour consultations. And so we're going as far as decorating and curtains and blinds and accessories and things which we didn't used to do we're certainly upping the marketing we've started doing professional video shoots on on projects we finished and putting those videos out online yeah lots of things we've upgraded the showroom enormously spending a lot of money on that and just really trying to invest in in moving forward and keeping that differential between us and everyone else what about you kenny what kind of measures are you are you taking positive and, and, and i guess the negative ones about cutting cutting costs or whatever the biggest thing for us is it's not about cutting costs, it's about growing. We are still, we've mentioned this last week, but we're only three, not even three yet, three years trading. And for us, we've still got a long way to go to get this company to where I want it to be. So we're actually looking at expanding and, and growing as a company rather than shrinking. And I know that is completely the opposite of what the industry is doing. And like Alex mentioned, if you're not going forwards, you are going to go backwards. And, and I, I'm a big believer in that. So we're actually taking steps to move forward and look at what we're currently not winning rather than try to maintain what we have and, and kind of cut costs. 
and, and just on that, as a result of that, we're actually consolidating our suppliers. We're, ha- we're dealing with less people and dealing better with those to gain better relationships to help us with with future plans. Why wow, that's interesting. What about you, Liz? Um, so yeah, we've done we've done many of the things. So the increase in marketing for me is an obvious first area to address. If footfall falls, we've expanded the products that we offer. So we now offer German range, which we haven't done up until the last couple of months. We've also taken on products such as internal doors, more lighting products and stuff, so complementary and taken to building tables and and offering chairs and and things to go with it. So expanding that average order value has been one of the approaches that we've done. And I also think the value on service as well. So going back to the online thing, if we are just delivering out a product, Perhaps we are more keen on that price and just charging a little bit more for the service, for the installation, the disposal of the products and making sure that we're making money there. And we are one of the companies that that do charge for a design service, not initially, but it is a limited free service. Um, and we very much enforce the the design fee as well. Why wow, that's so interesting. I think what what makes it so interesting for independent retailers is that they have this ability to pivot and change. You know, you, you, if you decide to do it, you can just do it. And I think that is one of the things that is a real benefit of what you do. Right, let, let's move on to the bit now that makes Simeon feel even more uncomfortable. Yeah, you're being really kind to I me know. today, Andy. Thank uh, you. By talking about what retailers think of suppliers. Now, we've touched on this a bit in, in, in lots of these subjects that we talked about. But we actually asked our survey retailers to rate their suppliers against various factors, right? So let's start with a simple one. In display support and investment, a very respectable 45% said it was excellent or good, but a not insignificant 16% said it was bad or very bad. 82% said the marketing and POS was good or average, but 13% said it was bad or very bad. So, Kenny, simple question with a complicated answer. What do you want from your suppliers in terms of displays and POS, etc. that comes with them? What would make you tick excellent to those questions? Well, when it comes to POS, I cannot stand it. Hate it with a passion. We pay an absolute fortune for our showroom in, in the lease that we, well, all showrooms cost a fortune to run, maintain, keep up to date. So why would I promote someone else's branding rather than my own? Our showroom's a little bit different where we have... 16 displays in our showroom so we're quite a small showroom for each display is set up like a bathroom so the idea is that people can look at that and go perfect that is what my bathroom could look like so as far as point of sale you don't have point of sale in in your bathroom at home so why would you have it in the showroom so we try and make it look as lifelike as we possibly can we put shampoos and bits and bobs in there to try and make it really feel like a, a home the way that I'm, I'm very analytical with my displays and I look at each single one and I say, right, how much of that brand am I selling? They might have 25% of my showroom. That brand has to almost pay me rent, if you like. Those displays have to cover their cost. If they don't, we'll move them on and we'll put something else there. So I'm very, very analytical like that. And as a result, our showroom's always changing. I do think manufacturers and suppliers should back us more than they currently do. The showroom costs an awful lot of money and they want us to promote their products. To pay for them, I think, is a little bit harsh when we're essentially promoting their brand for them. But at the same point, I've, I've worked for a manufacturer, so I do understand the flip side of you do need a level of investment from the, the retailer to really buy into the brand. So it's kind of a double-edged sword, really. There's no right answer. Well, Alex, what about you? What does What does good look like and what does bad look like? Well, uh, first of all, can I just pick up on a couple of points that uh, 
uh, Kenny and Liz made earlier. I mean, Kenny was talking about how he was consolidating his suppliers and getting better relationships with them. That's absolutely what over the years we've done. It's only in the last couple of years that I've started to think I want a little bit more diversity. I still want really good relationships with all the suppliers, but I've been putting a couple of different suppliers on and it it feels a bit more like future-proofing. It just feels like, as I say, a lot of these products are not as exclusive as they used to be. So sometimes you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. Uh, so that, that's the only reason. I, I do agree with Kenny on that, but that's the only reason I've started putting a couple more things on. With point of sale, I also agree with him. And I think this is something that we've come to the conclusion in the last couple of years as well, partly because we've moved on to a more interior design vibe rather than just kitchen design. I don't want to see point of sale that says, hey, you get free dishwasher tablets in there. I think a good brochure is essential whether you're displaying those or just keeping them on the counter and handing them out one of one of my bugbears is and we get this from our main suppliers we'll give somebody a brochure which i think you have to do when you've got a, a big kitchen range but in that brochure you get to the back and there's a dealer locator and it says type your address in and we'll show you the local dealers so effectively somebody will come in i'll give them a brochure that advertises somebody else within 25 miles who also sells the product and i think that's bonkers But yes, getting back to the actual question, (laughs) what does a good supplier look like Uh, is somebody, obviously, who can maintain the supply. There's no problems. There's good communications. Liz mentioned earlier about communications are getting worse and you have to communicate for a portal now. And I do find that hard as well. I don't really want to get my messages via email and get them by having to go into a a particular manufacturer's portal to see what's going on. So, you know, I would still like to see reps on the road and I would still like to have personal conversations with people. But ultimately, it's about support. It's, It's whether they're supporting you with a certain exclusivity of product. And I think that's one of my main concerns when I'm looking at a supplier now is... You know, do I get a territory with that product? But you need a consistency of supply. You need decent brochures, good pricing structures, support with displays, all of that. And I feel by and large I'm getting that. Simeon, to take a devil's advocate here, from your perspective, every retailer is different. So it's impossible for any brand to create something that every retailer thought was perfect for them so whether that's displays pos brochures whatever it is it's so important to get it right but it's really really hard to do something that applies to everybody well the thing is that it comes down to exactly what the the guys have been talking about just there which is relationships any brand or any manufacturer has to take the time to understand how their products go through the chain and how they end up with the end user therefore how can we actually add value to what specifically retailers are doing so something that we've been doing a lot more of recently which kind of chimes in with you know the results of the survey where it's been clear that a lot more retailers are are investing in marketing is doing collaborative marketing how do we help to drive traffic to the retailers that are working with us that's something that we feel is is a practical thing that we can do to help their business. And it's probably more use than, you know, as uh, both Kenny and Alex have already been uh, identifying, putting a lot of time, effort and money into POS. And obviously the situation that Alex has just described there, where effectively you're advertising your competition is um, is not a great situation and why should um, manufacturers be forcing that upon 
um, retailers. It just doesn't make any sense. I also want to dip into a couple of these other numbers that are much more like emotive, if you know what I mean. So we asked our retailers how they rated the supplier's ability to keep their promises. And again, 82%, good or average, okay. But 9% was like bad or very bad. That's such a weird thing to kind of people to have a, a very emotive reaction to, like I say. What do you think, Liz? Suppliers keeping their promises. I think as much as they, they can, and depending on the size of the supplier, depends how much control they have over it. And I would imagine that that's a pinpoint in time that could be reactive to a particular scenario as well. Pre-Christmas, we had a, a very poor situation with a very large company you know, where they repeatedly did not keep their promises. But that's that's not representative of our suppliers as a whole. And it comes ag- back again to the relationships. If you've got a good relationship, one, your supplier knows how you're going to react and how to handle you. And you know how reliable that company and that relationship in, in their responses will be as well. We've got good relationships, so generally we can have confidence in the information that we're given. But as with our own projects, you never know what you're going to uncover. You never know what surprises are going to face you. So so you're only as good as the information that you've been given. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because we asked how retailers rate the supplier's ability to keep them informed. And again, the the answer is about the same. It was 85% said good or average, 13% said bad or very bad, which is small, but it's not insignificant. So, look, we, we asked them then to rate them overall. The overall rating for suppliers, Simeon, was that 9% uh, of retailers gave uh, an excellent rating, uh, 46% good, 39% average, 5% bad, and 1% very bad. Now, that's actually all right. Considering all the issues we had with supply chain and everything, even just a couple of years ago, that's actually not a bad score. It's not a bad score, and that would suggest that, in the main, the lines of communication are open, and they are getting the information that they need so it's a matter of doing more and trying to um, up the fair to good and good to very good yeah it's interesting actually we asked what would make them switch suppliers and 45 percent of retailers said better service levels right as okay fine and then better stock levels better display deals they were in there as well and you think okay fine but actually what came ahead of better stock levels and better display deals was more innovative products which I find very, very interesting, that actually retailers are there looking at suppliers going, show me something new. That's a vitally important part of this. You know, it's certainly something that Hetic has done an awful lot of work on in the in the last few years is bringing much more innovative products to, to market because we understand that from a retailer's perspective, if you want to stand out from the crowd, then you've got to have something that gives that moment of theatre or magic that you know, will really inspire a, a customer to place an order there and then because you've got something that they haven't seen before. I mean, let's round off part two here and round off the whole thing by being very fair, right? Because we also asked suppliers what they think of retailers. All right, so we're going to be very fair to everybody. And obviously, as you can imagine, suppliers are very gushing about a lot of their retailers, quite rightly too. So I'm going to, I'm going to flip away from the, from the good stuff because just assume that they all think you're brilliant. But I asked what the most frustrating thing about working with independent retailers was. And the top answer was a reluctance to change or do things differently. But that tied with leaving orders to the last minute unnecessarily. So this is your chance to defend yourselves. <laughs> Liz, I'm going to start with you. Do you think independent kitchen and bathroom retailers have a reluctance to change or do things differently? I think there definitely is because when you change your processes, it has a knock-on effect and things can go wrong. But 
leaving leaving orders to last minute, I think that's that definitely has two sides to it because if you've got restocking fees or you can only report damages in a short period of time, you've got limited space. And um, what happens if a project is pushed back and then you're left with a small showroom and a huge amount of product that you've got to store because the client has no storage? Or in those scenarios where you place your order because you think everything's confirmed and then your client was woken up at 2am and decided that actually the decision they made really wasn't the decision they wanted to make and they want to change it, you're then passing potentially restock in or fees onto them because that's what we're going to be charged or sucking it up. So there's a risk at ordering too early and you have to weigh up the the balance of of what you do. Do you leave it to the last minute in case those changes occur and potentially risk it being a little bit too late or do you get it in sooner and potentially have unsatisfied customer, additional damages, not enough room to move around. Yeah, so there's a lot more to consider from the other side of that as well. What do you think, Alex? Do you think that they are fair criticisms or not? Yes, probably not. <laughs> the, the the expression, if, we, if it ain't broke, don't change it, when it comes to being reluctant to change practices, well, we're all... I've, I think in this discussion it's come out that we're all trying to move forward we all change the practices that we think need changing but it it doesn't necessarily mean that every practice needs changing we might just be getting it right when it comes to ordering last minute I think if Covid taught us anything it's that if you get an appliance order you better put it on the system fairly quickly there is a cash flow issue the last thing I want to be doing is taking lots of things into stock weeks before I need it because then I've got to pay for it and I won't have been paid for it at that stage so you've got to be a little bit careful with the cash flow How we do it is when we get an order, we put all those orders on the systems and we just specify when we want them delivering. And if they're not delivered, we're not charged for them. There's usually time to amend that if you're working several weeks in advance if something does go wrong. So my advice is always order everything, order the appliances, order the sinks, order the units and just you know put on them what week you'd like them delivered. Now, Kenny, one of the questions we asked uh, the suppliers was whether independent KVB retailers make the most of the support that is offered to them by their suppliers. And two-thirds of them just flatly said no, they don't. Do you think you make the most of the support that's offered, or is it that you just don't think the support is good enough? What do you think? Half the time, it's knowledge about the support. If they've got all these fantastic support mechanisms in place, and they're designed to help us as retailers, if we don't know about them, then we can't use them. Again, that comes down to the reps on the road actually training us and, and actually spending time with us about that kind of stuff. I don't know about anyone else in, in here today, but the amount of emails I get of generic random rubbish from all of our suppliers of deal of the day, buy 50 of these and get it 13 pence cheaper and all that kind of rubbish. Half of them, I just go, yeah, bin it, yeah, don't look at it, can't be bothered. If that information is being put in that kind of format, we might well be missing it. Until we actually have good training on the support systems from our suppliers until we have training on it and we understand how it works we won't be using it it is a symbiotic relationship and i think that the word partnership and relationship is used a lot when it comes to suppliers and retailers but really understanding each other's business and each other's point of view in this argument is really good and one of the things that came out of covid a couple of retailers have said this to me is i've learned more about supply chain and i've learned in 20 years in those two years of covid by understanding shipping rates and container rates and component parts because they they understood much more how the system works what are you learning from all this simian about how to deal with retailers do you think 
It's all about communication. I mean, it's exactly what you're just saying there. The fact that people have learned more in, in COVID is quite sad, actually, in, in some ways. Uh, it's good, but it's also quite sad because it means that there's not enough two-way communication because, yeah, we do rely on each other's success in order to be successful ourselves. So, yeah, it, it's basically that we need to communicate more and communicate better, and hopefully the retailers will see the benefit in spending time actually uh, engaging in those conversations as well. Thank you so much for all your time, everybody. Every one of these subjects we could do an entire podcast on, but thank you so much for scratching the surface for us. There's some really, really interesting numbers in here that, that will keep coming out again and again and again. But for now, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your uh, support with this, uh, and we'll speak again soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Well, that was part two of our look at the KVP Review Retailer Survey 2024. So a final thanks to Liz, Kenny, Alex and Simeon for their time. I'll put the link to part one in the episode description or simply search KVP Review wherever you get your podcasts like Apple Podcasts or Spotify and you'll not only be able to see the previous episode but the 200 that come before it. A huge thanks again to our 2024 research partner, Hetic, for all their support. You can find out all about them at hetic.com. And of course, don't forget the time is running out for you to book your tickets for the KBB Review Retail and Design Awards 2024. It's on March the 4th at the Hilton Birmingham Metropole. And as I'm sure you know, that's the Monday night of the KBB show. You can find out everything you need to know at kbbreview.com forward slash awards. And all these links are in the episode description. See you next time.